Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. He is risen. And that's what we're here for, guys, this morning. Um, it, we could come together and, and talk about a bunch of different things, but this morning the thing we're here to talk about is that 1984 years ago, Jesus conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning. And seeing that, guys, is freeing. So we're going to talk about this morning is seeing is freeing. Seeing that reality, not with your eyes, with the eyes of your heart. Seeing that reality is freeing. That's what we're going to look at here in John 20 this morning. Jesus' followers, guys, were, were freed by seeing Jesus alive and back from the dead after three days. And there was a massive need on that first Easter morning to see. And there's a massive need to see that this morning as well. Um, we, the reason why it's so important that we see the reality of the resurrection is, is that we're saved by seeing. We're actually saved by seeing and understanding and believing a message about Jesus' death and resurrection. We're not saved by doing, we're saved by looking. G- many religions will say to you, do this, do that, and maybe we'll see if you can get heaven. Uh, but Christianity says, see, look, behold him, trust in him. Seeing saves us. But also seeing transforms us, doesn't it? We can see that with the first people here that saw the resurrection. We see that before they saw Jesus raised, Mary's weeping, right? We see that the disciples are are holed up, locked up in a room in fear. We see Thomas is doubting. So we see weeping and sorrow and doubting. And yet after they see Jesus, guys, alive from the dead, they're set free. And they have a joy and a confidence in their lives that they never had before. And that happened by seeing. And that kind of freedom, guys, only comes when we really, really see what happened here? Um, this is Easter morning, and, and lots of people will be gathered um, over Easter to, to think about Jesus' resurrection. But it's surprisingly easy, guys, to miss the magnitude of what happened here. It, it's really easy to look at the resurrection but not really see it, and not really get it, and not really be freed by it. We see that in verses 3 through 8. If you look at verses 3 through 8, you can see that um, when Mary told the disciples that the tomb was empty, John and Peter run there, right? And John adds, you know, I ran a little faster than Peter. You know, for some reason, he needs to add that. John was the first to get there. He kind of peeks in the tomb, and then he comes away, and he's not really changed by that. Peter does a little better. He goes inside. He looks around, but he's not really changed by that. Then John goes back in. He looks around, and it says he saw and he believed. He was transformed by seeing. Um, How about you this morning? Have you come here with fears? Have you come here with sorrows? Have you come here with doubts? You need to be set free by seeing the resurrection. We all do. And so let's pray for that this morning. Let's pray that God would come and do that very thing in our hearts. Father, we confess that we are sinners in need of your grace, and that we have all come here, Lord, with different issues, whether they're doubts or sorrows or fears. We need to hear from you, our Father. We need you to bring conviction and faith and joy and courage to our hearts today, Lord. Show us your risen son. Give us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see what this day is all about, Lord. Help us to see the empty tomb and even more to see his resurrected body on that first Easter. All that you've done in in him being crucified for our sins and raised three days later. Lord, we pray that you would rock us by the historical, death-destroying, sin-removing power of the resurrection of Jesus, Lord. Take away our fears and sorrows and doubts this morning. Give us resurrection courage and joy and confidence. We pray that you would do this and all kinds of other things in this room for your glory to put your perfections on display, Lord. We pray that we would leave here with a joy and a confidence we've never had before. 
whether we're um, those who don't yet know you and we have that leaving for the first time or whether we've been believers for a really long time and we're just in a time when we really need to see this, Lord, we pray that you do that work today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to look at how seeing Jesus alive from the dead frees us from our doubts, our sorrows, and our fears. First, we'll look at the, uh, we'll look at the uh, doubts. We'll start with Thomas, and though it's not in order, the reason we start with Thomas is it turns out you need to believe the resurrection happened for it to transform you. So we're going to look at Thomas. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in the hands the marks of the nails and put my fingers in the marks of the nails and place my hand in his side, I'll never believe. We call this guy what? Doubting Thomas. Not really fair, he did it once, okay? It's one of those deals, I mentioned it before, but when you're in a small town, you know, you make that one mistake, you can never, never uh, hear the end of it. That's the deal with Thomas. Thomas is actually very loyal. We see in chapter 11 when they went to go um, heal Lazarus, um, Thomas was believing that, hey, if we go there, we're going to die, and he says, let's go die with him. So he's a very loyal man, he's very loyal to Jesus, a little dark, a little pessimistic, but loyal. But Jesus, guys, wasn't there when the other disciples saw Jesus. He wasn't there Easter morning, okay? And so all the disciples had to endure Holy Saturday, which Holy Saturday is a day between Good Friday and today. It was a day of deep darkness for the disciples, thinking that all hope was lost. You think about that day, their, their master, their savior was dead, and they didn't know about the resurrection. They weren't expecting it. But Thomas, on top of that, had eight additional days of deep doubt and darkness. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, you know, all around you, you feel like everybody else has such an easy time believing. And here you are struggling with doubts and in darkness. And maybe that's you today. Um, Thomas had heard that Jesus was alive, but he wanted hard proof before he'd believe. And the amazing thing is, guys, is that Jesus was happy to give it to him. Jesus was happy to give him that proof. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was there. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas wanted proof, and Jesus was happy to give it to him. And Jesus gave it to him in such a compassionate, loving way. Because one of the things you can't see in your Bible is that the word that Jesus uses for touch and the word that Thomas uses for touch are different words here. The word that Thomas uses for touch is balo, which means to thrust. It's an aggressive word. It's a kind of a, a forceful word. The word that Jesus uses is pharaoh, which is to touch or to place. So Thomas is here. He's been doubting. He's in these deep doubts, and he's angry. He's angry that God hasn't revealed himself in some greater way to him. Everybody else is kind of getting a revelation of what's going on with me. And so he says, unless I thrust my hand in his side, I'll never believe. You see that word never. They're real defiant. He's angry. And Jesus responds to him with such grace and with love and uses this word, a gentle word, meaning touch or place. Guys, Jesus is a doubter-friendly savior. Jesus is a doubter-friendly savior. You won't find that anywhere else. Um, other religions, other main religions, if you have doubts, you're the enemy of that religion all of a sudden. Uh, there's parts of the world where if you begin to doubt, you begin, I don't know if I believe this anymore, I'm struggling with this, that is a death sentence. Jesus is a doubter-friendly savior. Jesus is perfectly willing to give Thomas all reasonable proof, and he'll give it to you today as well. Now, of course, Jesus' body isn't here to touch I put something on Facebook to kind of promote Easter Sunday, and somebody had commented, I didn't know who he was, but he had a very good question. The way I made it sound was like that somehow we're going to have Jesus raised from the dead on Sunday morning. And so he wrote something like, oh, you can have him raised from the dead on Sunday morning? I'll drive out for that. 
And I said, well, you know, he did it a long time ago. And then his response was, did you see it? Okay, so here's, here's an idea here is that we will have different reasonable proof than they would have had, okay? Jesus is raised from the dead. He took his body with him when he ascended. His body's in heaven. It's a one-time event. He doesn't do this every Easter, right? Do this one time. But the evidence that's there is historical evidence, and it's very good evidence. There is very, very, very good reasons to believe that Jesus historically was raised from the dead. And, um, and, and God has made this very certain. We see that throughout Acts as they're preaching it to people who didn't see it. Um, they're saying that you may know for certain that God has raised him from the dead. There are a lot of things, guys, that we can't be certain about. I've been a Christian for about 30 years. There are a ton of things that make me scratch my head. I wonder about. I don't know how certain things work. Lots of uncertainty. But one thing we can know for certain, guys, is that Jesus on the third day was raised from the dead. And how can we be sure? We can be sure because we have four complementary first century accounts of it, okay? These are first century accounts of it. They were written by either people who saw or people who interviewed people who saw Jesus alive from the dead. And it's amazing that we even have these guys. I mean, these are, you know, over 1,900-year-old documents that we have. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want to go through, though, a few questions you might have. A few reasons why you might not believe these four. And you might not struggle with this. There's certain people I know in this room, I know many of you really well, that don't struggle with this ever. You don't have a single doubt. That must be wonderful for you. Um, but there's others of us that do struggle with doubt. And in times of a difficulty, in times of pain, times when we don't understand what's going on, or in a time when God's calling us to some level of obedience that we don't really want to do, we go, you know what, I don't know if this is all true. And again and again, you can come back to the reality of the resurrection. Some questions people might ask. And if you have more questions than I discuss, please come up to me. I'd love to talk about it. Um, you might ask, why these four accounts? Why do we have these particular four accounts? We have these particular four accounts because they were written in the first century. The reason why that's important is because this event happened about 33 AD. Okay, So about 1984 years ago. So I'm having so much trouble saying earlier. <laughs> um, and... We want first century accounts because we want the account of people that either saw him alive after he was dead or people that were interviewed, that were able to interview those people. So they need to be first century accounts. So other gospels like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, written many hundreds of years later, a couple hundred years later, and they're not written by who they say they are. Okay? And so that's why we have these accounts. You might ask yourself, well, how do we know that John and the gospel writers weren't lying? Do you ever wonder that? Maybe they were lying. Maybe they just made this up. Guys, if you were going to make up a story of the resurrection, you wouldn't write it this way. There's too much counterproductive material in this for this to be something that was a fake. For example, if you were those guys and you were going to write a story about the resurrection, you certainly wouldn't write the founders of the church in fear and in doubt. Okay? You say show the founders of the church in fear and in doubt. You also would not write it with Mary being the first eyewitness. The reason why is that in the first century, women's testimony was not um, respected. It wasn't even allowed in a court of law. A woman could witness a violent crime in the first century and not be able to testify in court. And so if you were going to fake a story, you certainly wouldn't write Mary in as the first eyewitnesses, as the first eyewitness, unless it really happened that way. Another thing you've got to consider is that most of the apostles, John's the exception, were brutally killed for, what, for proclaiming that Jesus was alive from the dead. Now, people often will die for things that are lies, but people don't die in mass for things they know are lies, okay? These people knew that if Jesus was alive or he was dead, and whether he came back from the dead, and yet they were unwilling to recount their story because it was true, and because seeing Jesus alive made them bold to be willing to die for it. 
As Blaise Pascal says, the 17th century mathematician and um, physicist, he said this, I believe those witnesses who are willing to get their throats cut when he talked about these accounts, and he was utterly convinced of this. What, what if the disciples, though, went to the wrong tomb and somebody has, or somebody had stolen the body and the disciples just assumed Jesus was raised from the dead? They went to the empty tomb and they went, oh, he's raised from the dead, right? And we talked that way on Sunday. We talked about the empty tomb and all this stuff, the empty tomb. That's not all they say they saw. They said they saw an empty tomb. But what else did they see? They saw his resurrected body. They touched him. They were with him. For over 40, for 40 days, they were with him, off and on, seeing his raised body. Um, what if the disciples, guys, were just overcome with grief and wanted so badly for Jesus to be alive, so they had visions or hallucinations that he was alive, and, and they just kind of, you know, had visions about these things? A couple things wrong with that idea is that they were not expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. We can see that throughout the story. They weren't expecting him to be raised from the dead. They were disbelieving, as we can see here. And they knew that stuff like visions and hallucinations happened, and they didn't trust their eyes, right? The disciples, like Thomas, they wanted to touch him. They wanted proof. They needed to physically handle him to know that he was really back from the dead. The other thing to realize, guys, is that people do have hallucinations and stuff, but they don't synchronize them, okay? In 1 Corinthians, it talks about at one point there were 500 people that saw Jesus alive at once. Now, one person can have a hallucination. 500 people don't do it together the same, right? Have the same hallucination together, right? Okay, you could say, well, what if Jesus didn't really die? He just appeared to die on the cross, then he's put in the tomb, and later he's revived and you see him alive. So the solution to that is he didn't really die. He was just put in the tomb, and later he appeared like he came back to life, but he didn't actually die. This is something that the, the Muslims say about Jesus. Keep in mind, guys, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. Like, that's what they did for a living. I don't know what you do for a living. You do a certain thing. It's your job. You do it every day. These people killed people every day. Okay? And they also made sure he was dead by shoving a spear up into his chest into his pericardium, which is a sack around your heart. That's going to kill him. Okay? The other thing, too, is let's just imagine that somehow Jesus survives the, the beatings, the whippings, the crucifixion. He's taken down. He's thrown in a tomb. And then what? Three days later, he's skipping around saying he's the Lord of life? No. He would not have be, be, looked in any kind of condition to say he'd conquered death. He would look like death. Okay, he wasn't in an ICU. He was in a tomb without food or water, right, after all of that. Um, so there's many things that you can come up with, and what you find over and over again is that they're not good alternative theories, right? You go, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was this, and you're like, nah, it's not very good, you know? Maybe it was this. You need to doubt your doubts, guys. You need to doubt your doubts. When you have doubts, you actually need to put as much pressure on those to answer questions as the Bible does, as you put on the Bible. Because what a lot of times happens is we put a ton of pressure on, on the Bible to prove itself, and we put very little pressure on all of our little theories to prove themselves. Um, what about this one? Well, you know, people back then, they just believed in resurrections and wouldn't have demanded a lot of proof, and maybe they were just easier to mislead. Well, actually, they didn't just believe in resurrections. The Jews believed in a resurrection at the end where everybody was resurrected at the same time. They didn't believe in individuals being resurrected. The Jews didn't. And the Greco-Roman culture certainly didn't believe in resurrections. They saw the body as something to escape. When you died, you're escaping your earthly container. This is something we want to get rid of. They have a totally different view of the body than, than the scriptures have. And so they wouldn't have seen resurrection as something desirable, and they would have seen it as impossible. So everybody in this culture, guys, in that culture, would have believed the physical resurrection was impossible. They doubted it at least as much as we do, but for different reasons. Okay, so they demanded proof. 
Nor should we think, guys, that somehow people that lived a long time ago were more gullible and less intelligent than us. And we do that, don't we? You guys can admit that. I don't know what the limit is, like 1900s, yeah, they were as smart as us, 1800, well, you know, and then you get back to ancient people and you think, these people, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, were basically morons compared to us because we have smartphones and we have computers and stuff like that, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery, okay? You don't realize it, but you're being a snob chronologically, is you're saying that somehow people in ancient times, these people were just as smart as us. They doubted it just as much, but for different reasons. And guys, nothing explains the birth of the church like the resurrection. Think about it. Think about the first century. Think about a religion starting about God becoming a man and being crucified and raised from the dead. That would not sell in the first century, okay? The Jews wouldn't like it because they're certainly not going to worship a man as God. That's idolatry, right? They're certainly not going to believe that the Messiah would be crucified. They didn't believe that. They hated that idea, right? Because he was a curse. Like, the Messiah is not a curse. Um, They would have had issues with the resurrection. The Greco-Roman culture certainly didn't like the idea of putting up a, a crucified criminal as God. They thought, well, that's weak. That's foolish. That's ridiculous. It was laughable to them. And yet you have something just blow up in that context. Thousands of people come to believe. In, under intense persecution. What accounts for that? What accounts for something growing in an environment it doesn't belong in with intense persecution? What accounts for it is that something shocked them into belief. There was something that happened that shocked them so much that they believed, and it was the physical resurrection of Jesus. And so as unusual as it sounds, the resurrection of Jesus is actually the best explanation for the historical data. And so what happened? Well, on Friday... He was beaten, he was whipped, he was unable to even carry his cross the whole way. They put him up on the cross, they they crossed his feet over, they put a nail right through both of his ankles, they they put nails through both of his wrists, he hung there for hours, he died, they speared him, they took his body down, they put him in a tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, They, they covered it up with a stone, they put guards in front, and inside was the dead, mangled body of Jesus. And, Saturday, and Friday night, there was a dead body in there, a mangled dead body. And Saturday, dead body. And he would have gone, undergone the normal processes. Starts to get rigor mortis, starts to dry up. So he assumes room temperature. He's a dead body. Saturday night, he's a dead body. Late Saturday night, he's a dead body. <laughs> Sunday morning, right around dawn, something happens. His heart starts to beat for the first time. His temperature starts to return to a normal body temperature from room temperature. Maybe there's a you know, a little twitch of his finger, a twitch of the toe. And then he gasps the first breath of air he's had since Friday when he breathed his last. And then he got up, and he probably, like, cracked his back, you know, stretched, right? You're laying on that stone. And then this account says he neatly folds his face cloth, which I like. I'm a tidy person, a little OCD. I like that. He folds it up. He sets it down. He walks out, and he goes and sees his friends. Isn't that amazing? What's Thomas's reaction? Look at verse 28. Thomas, when he sees him, finally sees him, and he sees that he is physically alive and well, he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas, seeing the resurrection, was clear proof that Jesus was God. And what does Jesus say? Does he correct him? He's like, no, 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 I'm not really God. I'm, you know, more of a created being. Does he do that? No. What does he say to him in return? He says in verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
Jesus is saying, yes, Thomas, you finally get who I am. Guys, this whole creation points to the reality that there's a creator. I mean, you look at those of you who have children, you know, the birth of a baby, a lot of times they're like, whoa, there is a God. You know, you look out in the stars, you look at creation, you look at all these things, and you think, there's something more here. There's some sort of creator. You know what's cool? That although all of creation points to a creator, the resurrection tells us his name. Because you can know there's a God and not know his name. The resurrection tells us God's name. And Thomas gets it. Guys, I struggle with doubts in many areas. But this helps. Seeing is freeing. Secondly, seeing Jesus raised from the dead frees us from our sorrows. For this, we'll look at Mary. Mary was the first to see that the stone had been rolled away. She was the first to see that Jesus' body wasn't there. And he, she runs, right? She runs to the others, and she tells them. And they come and look, and they take off. But, but Mary stays, right? Mary stays, and she's weeping near the tomb. If you look at verse 11, it says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there by where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, why have you taken my Lord away? I do not know where they have laid him. Mary, guys, had lost the most important person in her life, and now she couldn't even give him a decent burial. And I know, guys, in this room, and me and you and all of us, we have all lost people, and we're going to lose more. It's part of life. We lose people. And sometimes the way we lose them seems so unfair, so senseless, so unnecessary, so absurd. That's Mary's situation, right? She's like, this is senseless, this is absurd, and now I don't even have his body, I can't even bury him properly. Um, you guys remember what Macbeth said when he heard that his wife, the queen, took her own life. You remember what he said? He said this about life. He said, life is a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour on the stage and then is heard no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like life is senseless? Guys, with deaths like this, it makes us feel like life is random and senseless and pointless. That's where Mary is. She's there weeping. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. And, she said, and he said, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, that I might take him away. And Jesus said to her in a way that only Jesus could say to her, Mary. And she turned and she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I've ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And then Mary goes and she announces, I've seen the Lord. Guys, seeing Jesus raised from the dead freed Mary from all of her sorrows. What about us? You think, okay, that's good for Mary, right? But all of us have lost people that are dear to us. All of us have lost um, believing dear people, people in Christ. We have lost these dear people, and we've not had the good fortune like Mary to all of a sudden find them suddenly, unexpectedly alive, right? I mean, that's our dream, right? You wake up from those nightmares, and you think, maybe none of that happened. Maybe I'll just see them alive, right? You have those thoughts when you lose somebody close to you. Mary had that experience. We don't have that experience. What does the resurrection say to us? Well, what does the Bible really teach about heaven? Do you know what it teaches? The Bible teaches, guys, that heaven is not a place we retreat from this world. It teaches that heaven is preparing to invade and overtake this world. A lot of times we think that somehow, you know, this life is hard, and heaven is its place where we're going to retreat from here. We're going to, like, get out of here, we're going to retreat. 
The Bible actually teaches that heaven is not a retreat from this world, but it is preparing to invade and overtake this world. Because, guys, as a humanity, what we basically have said to God is, we don't want your interference in this world. We can manage our lives on our own. We don't need your care. We got this, right? Do we got this? We don't got this, right? In our rebellion against God, we've let all kinds of evil into the world. We see war and suffering and ecological disaster and crime and sickness and sin and death. We have made a huge mess of this beautiful place. It's still got much of its beauty, but we've messed it up big time, right? Trying to live without God. But God, guys, is not done with this world. Heaven is not a retreat. It's a party preparing to invade. We see that in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, verse 1, this is later... Um, When he makes the world new, it says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now listen to this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, heaven, is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And there shall neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Isn't that awesome? The final state is that heaven will invade and overtake this world, that heaven and earth will become one place. And we pray for that, not knowing it, in the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying heaven come, heaven and earth being one place. It will be one place. And all those who trust in Jesus will be raised from the dead to enjoy it. And will be given new and upgraded bodies. Um, how do I know that? Jesus' resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that that is our, the model for our body, that we will actually have resurrected bodies like he has a resurrected body. We won't look exactly like him. We'll look like us, but we'll have resurrected bodies. And those resurrected bodies, guys, will be more real and more substantial and more solid than the bodies we have now. They'll be made whole and they'll be made new. Um, there's some hint to that in this passage. In two places in this passage, Jesus seems to walk through locked doors. Did you notice that? And two times, it says they're in a locked room, and then he goes, hey, peace, guys, you know? He's, like, popping in on them, right? And people will say, well, you know, maybe he he wasn't physical. He's clearly physical, right? He wasn't able to move through those doors because somehow he's less physical than the door. He was able to move through doors and walls because they're less physical than him. The doors are the ghosts, guys. Jesus is the solid one. And we live in a world right now, guys, that is a shadow of what it will be. There's something way more solid and way more substantial coming, and Jesus' body is a picture of that. This world, guys, is going to undergo a kind of resurrection. And it's going to be like the garden, but it'll be better than the garden. Because you remember in the garden, that God would come down and he'd walk with them in the cool of the day, right? It's kind of like, you know, you got a dog, it's in your backyard, it's not an indoor dog, it's an outdoor dog. And you, you go out there once in a while and it jumps all over you, it's all excited. That's what it's like. God would come in the garden, and he would be with them in the cool of the day, and they must have been so excited to hear him rustling around. They're like, it's God, let's go on with him, right? This passage says in in Revelation 21 that he will come and he will dwell with us always. Verse 3 says, behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man, and he will dwell with them. Heaven and earth will be one place. There'll be no other place for God to go, because heaven's here. Heaven and earth is one place. And when he makes, when he does that, guys, he's going to make everything right. Even, the, even your past pain will somehow retroactively be fine, 
right? He says in verse 4 in Revelation 21, God himself will be with with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. And I was texting a friend of mine this the other day, and he goes, well, I hope that's true. You know, I would like that. I hope that's true. How do we know? We know because it's already started. (laughs) It started on Easter. It started with the resurrection. Jesus' body being raised from the dead was the beginning of the new creation invading this world. It was the beginning of heaven touching down on earth. It's a foretaste, guys, of what we're going to have. The resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of heaven invading earth. And the order of the invasion is like this. First, it's Jesus' body raised from the dead as a sign of the future. Then, it's the new creation in you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. There's new creation, just like his body was new creation. There's a new creation in you if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus. You have new creation in you. And then the next stage is that your body undergoes new creation. So that life that's in you that's kind of hidden, you know, we see signs of it, but it's kind of hidden, will become physical and visible when your body is raised and made new. And then he's going to do it to the whole physical world. It will all be renewed. Heaven and earth will be one place. You guys remember what um, Jesus said to Martha when she had lost her brother Lazarus, he had died, and he comes on the scene, and she's kind of interrogating him, and this is what he said to Martha, he said about her dead brother, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, and then he ends it with a question, do you believe this? I love that there's a question there. That question John wrote in there because he said it, but it's for us too. Do you believe this? And I'll tell you what, guys. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, I do believe it. I wouldn't have believed it any other way. But it's already started. It started with Jesus. Seeing is freeing. There's going to be this great reversal of our sorrows. Lastly, seeing Jesus um, raised frees us from our fears. This one's a lot faster. Remember where the disciples were before they'd seen that Jesus was raised from the dead? They were in fear. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Guys, they're immobilized in fear. When Jesus appears, they were set free from their fear, seeing him raised from the dead. Because, guys, seeing Jesus raised from the dead showed them that their greatest enemies were not the Jews. Their greatest enemies were sin and death, and they were conquered. Their greatest problem was solved. When they saw that, they knew it. It made them bold. It took away their fears. Um, I've already looked at how Jesus conquers death, but what about sin? Because, guys, if you think about it, you shouldn't just be afraid of dying. You should be afraid of what comes afterwards. Um, Hebrews talks about it is appointed for people once to die and then the judgment. And Jesus himself taught that not everybody's going to enter that new creation world that he's making, right? He says some of them will be sent to outer darkness. That's a place, too. Talked about there being weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said some of the most terrifying things about that place. And the reason is our sin. We've all, guys, and I think we can all admit this, we've all in our own ways rebelled against God's rule. We've all rejected his interference in our lives. Um, We've not seen him as our creator and our father, one to be obeyed and to live with under his care. We've seen him as an intrusion of our lives. And that sin, that rebellion is that sin. The good news is that God himself became a man. God himself became a man. And that man's name is Jesus. He dies on a cross in our place for our sins. And if you trust in him today, he will wipe away all your sin. 
You say, well, that doesn't sound possible. The resurrection assures us it is possible. Okay? The resurrection, and, and Paul said in Romans 4, he says that, we, we, that Jesus was raised for our justification. What he's saying there is that Jesus' resurrection should be proof to our hearts that God has the power to remove our sin. And we need that kind of assurance, don't we, guys? I mean, some of you might be here saying, like, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, paying for sins. Um, I, I hear what you say about him giving new life, but not me. Ever feel like that? Not me. Doesn't apply to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've become. I'm beyond redemption. I've heard a lot of people say that before. I'm beyond redemption. Or you might be here and saying, you know, I do believe that Jesus has cleansed my sin, but I do also feel like there is a particular sin, a stain, that I walk around with all the time. Had it for decades. And and I really believe that somehow I'm going to heaven, but I feel like I'm stained still. I carry this thing around with me. To that, guys, God presents you the raised body of Jesus from the dead. And the reason why he does that is he wants to show you that there's no sin in this room that's stronger than, that is stronger than this Savior. There is no sin in this room that is stronger than this Savior who was raised from the dead. And, and look how the resurrection frees them from their fear. Look at verse 19, the second half. Jesus came and he stood amongst them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said these things, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Can you imagine? Like, they're all in fear. They got their doors locked. They think they got every area barricaded. And then somebody just pops right in, and it's Jesus. And he says, peace, guys. I'm fine. And he's like, you know what? You guys are going to be more than fine. All your problems are solved. All your problems are solved. This word peace, the word they would have used there, it's not the Greek word, the word they would have used is the word shalom. The word shalom is this word that's just a sense of like deep well-being. Have you ever had times, I mean, I don't feel like this all the time, but you ever had times when everything's right? Like everything's going to be fine. Everything's good. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to flourish. Um, my life has, you know, the best possible outcomes. Like it's this sense of just deep, profound, rich sense of goodness. And, and they feel this sense of shalom, and it's, a, it's something they can never lose. The resurrection of Jesus, guys, shows that our greatest problems, sin and death, are solved. And people who have that peace, that shalom, that knowing that they're right with God no matter what, and they can't really die. You ever think about that? You can't really die. A friend of mine, Bo, he was once talking to his uh, family who were not believers at the time, and, and he said to him, um, he said, I'm going to go to Laos. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going back. And his mom said to him, communists will kill you. And I remember what Bo said to her. He said, Mom, people like me don't die. People like us don't die. Not really. We'll be raised from the dead. And so people that have that sense of being right with God and don't really die, they're unstoppable. And Peter was, right? Before he saw the resurrection, where was he? He's afraid, right? I mean, he denied Jesus, right? He's fearful. After, it's like the Proverbs says, bold as a lion. He's out there in the public square preaching Jesus, to get beat up, he preached Jesus again, eventually offers his own life to be crucified upside down because he believed so firmly in the resurrection. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus makes fearful people brave. And notice that the opposite of fear here isn't just peace, it's mission. Take a look at verse 22. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I'm going to send you. He's like, your problems are solved, but I got a mission for you. He's like, you're a part of my plan. You're a part of my plan for heaven to invade earth. 
I put the new creation within you, and you're going to take this throughout the world. You're a part of the invasion party. And that's what we've been about, guys, as a church. I mean, we're um, not even two years old, very new church. Uh, and not even being two, you know, if we spit up on you or we smell weird or we broke your furniture, that's why. Um, we're, we're new. But that's what we've been about. We've been about being that invasion party, being those witnesses of the resurrection, those witnesses of the kingdom. And we want to ask you to join us. Join us this morning by, by receiving Jesus. I mean, he will take away any stain you have. He will make you new, and he will give you a life that's unstoppable. He will raise you from the dead. He'll give you the new world. He'll give you himself. That was the thing all these people really wanted. They all just wanted Jesus. They knew him. They loved him. They wanted to be with him. He'll give you himself. Um, So receive him today. Um, If you haven't been baptized, get baptized on the 7th. We'll have a baptism. Come back next week. We're going to start a series in the book of Jonah. We're going to talk about the mission God has for us and, and, and being faithful to that mission. And join us by making disciples in this community, guys. Behold, he makes all things new. He is risen. Let me do it again. He is risen. Father, we pray and thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reality of the resurrection. There were people that don't die. And we're people that are right with you. Lord, we thank you that you will, on the final day, long after we have lived this life and died in the body, that you will take that body out of the grave and you'll make it new, just like you did with Jesus' body. We thank you for that so much. We thank you that his body, his risen body, proves that you've removed all our sin. And I just pray, Lord, that this morning would be a beginning, a beginning for all of us, no matter where we are with you, whether um, came in here and didn't know you, It'd be a beginning of knowing you. If we came in here and we've been walking with you and we're doing pretty well, Lord, that this would be something that would just stir us up again to your mission. We pray for those, Lord, who came here who love you and know you but wrestle so hard with doubt and they wish they didn't. It's the thing they hate most about themselves. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up their faith, Lord. I pray that this morning you give them a glimpse of the reality of the resurrection. Lord, I pray for those who are here, who came here, with immense sorrow, having lost people that they just never thought they could live without, and now they have to, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the resurrection would be their hope. I pray, Lord, for those who are in fear, Lord, for those who may be coming here is super scary. Um, Doing anything is scary. Lord, I pray that you would give them a glimpse of the raised Jesus, Lord. Make them as bold as lions, as the Proverbs say. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us a real historical event, a signpost in history that tells us we're on the right track and following the right person. Thank you in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.